Welcome to Unexpressed, where we express the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today we talk to author, Whitefire editor, and my wife, Rosanna White. Her books, A Stray Drop of Blood and Jewel of Persia, helped launch Whitefire as a publisher. She has many, many other books with other publishers, including the bestseller, The Lost Heiress, which we'll link to in the show notes. We talk about the power of fiction, why everyone should read romance, and her hashtag Be Better campaign. We started with this idea of there are great stories out there that don't get told simply because of a setting that isn't popular or, you know, one element that's too risky, um, but the writing's fabulous and the story's fabulous and it really comes from the author's heart. Um, so those were the the authors that first brought us our stories. They had these stories of the heart that we, we called them that were things they really wanted to write or had already written that were a quality that that would be you know fine for any huge publisher but the subject or matter better. yeah or better a lot of times um but the subject matter was just a little too risky for a big publisher to to want to take on um so we kind of started with this idea of well let's give them a home um but then as as we started building our line we we started with the authors i knew best were who were historical writers and um, from there, then we, we became pretty deliberate as we built out our line. When we wanted to branch into contemporary, we really started asking, well, what would make this a white fire book? And the kind of funny thing is it usually had a risk, but it was a risk that made us think this is something that's really going to resonate with, for one thing, a younger market, um, the traditional CBA readership has been aging. So we wanted to think, well, what talks... Has it been aging or has it always been older? I, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like Buick and Cadillac, right? Like, <laughs> they always appeal to an older Eventually, crowd. older people graduate into a Buick or Cadillac. Like, <laughs> you know, is it is it the conservative element that as you get older, you get more you get conservative? More conservative. That, that probably is part of it. Um, and it's probably, it's probably a little bit of both that, you know, we know that our generation, which is the very edge of the millennials, the upper edge of the millennials, and those younger than us, and even, you know, a little bit above us, tend to want things that are different from what traditional Christian books have been in the past. They don't want that kind of candy coating where everything is neat and tidy because the world is not neat and tidy. And they look at it and yeah, want let's, something Let's back deeper. up away from books for a second because it's also a case where you know, younger Christian folks are looking for something a little bit different in their lives in general, right? So do those two things reflect in what stories we're looking for? Um, or maybe that's getting too far. But So where are we seeing differences in, in what people are looking for? I mean, one of the things that I've heard constantly define younger generations is that we care more about people and experiences than about things and... Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's something that, you know, we've talked a lot about because things are cyclical. So, you know, we have the, our grandparents' generation that lived through the depression. So they have this focus on, you know, I want better than I had. I want to give my kids better than I had. And they've instilled that in the next generation, which wants even better. And then you get to the point where a generation tosses its hands up and says, no, my life is so full of stuff. There's no room anymore. And there's for really no room for better, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. I mean, we have what's better. I mean, sure, there's always bigger, fancier, more expensive. But there comes a point where most of us realize that that does nothing for, you know, for our life and for our kids who then, you know, as the generations keep on marching, you, you just look at them and go, well, how am I going to give them a life that's meaningful instead of just full of stuff? Right. So I wonder how that translates into the stories that we want to read and hear about. Yeah, I think it has a huge impact on it because um, we don't just want, you know, that that story where it has the happy ending in that a problem is solved, something is gotten. Um, you know, there's this kind of simple storyline, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> I'm kind of struggling a bit with how to pinpoint that. Um 
But yeah, it seems like a lot of younger readers that I talk to, and younger at this point just is like 40 and under. <laughs> but but they want complicated. Yeah, they rebel against this idea that there's just a simple story where everything works out. Because that's not the world they've experienced. We live in, you know, an age where everyone has had content, contact with things like drug problems and suicide and... Uh, incredible, you know, sexual immorality, promiscuity, you know, being everywhere in the world. And we've been kind of raised into this society where we're told by almost everyone except for a handful of the church that this is, this is fine. And then it kind of grates against what we learn when we read the Bible of, no, it's not. God has higher expectations of us. Um, so, But then that conflicts with some of the traditional faith-based storytelling right where it's you know no immorality no right you know. so yeah because you read some of those books and i mean i've read tons of them and i loved them at the back in the day and still well i'm not saying that they don't have also have a huge place but they're escapism right. right because that is not the life i live that is not the world i live in i mean it's it's great to say that we're not glorifying sin in these stories but half the time they're not even acknowledging sin in these stories like it's not that they teach you how to deal with um you know alcoholism yeah, it's or, a vacation right yeah it's it's just that it let's imagine a simpler it. place can you what's simpler place than lancaster pennsylvania <laughs> right. and amish village right at least from our point of view though of course i'm sure if you went there it would have everything. well they have to have conflict and they have to have a story sure. too but yeah. but it's yeah and, and it's that idea of a simpler time and that's why historicals have always been a sweet spot in christian publishing too because it's that simpler time you can't see my air quotes but i'm totally air quoting it because the real truth is that we may have rosy glasses on about how things used to be but it's never been great right the human heart has always been what the human heart is now and that is a messy messed up complicated falling quickly from god sort of thing that you know the the epiphany of one generation does not transfer to the next it doesn't take long to fall away so you know there are cycles yeah the war to end all wars lasted 20 <laughs> right. years <laughs> yeah yeah and, and it was so peaceful those 20 years too there were no problems no <laughs> so i still go back to i think that our books were in quite a lot of ways an accident <laughs> because we were choosing things that other people didn't choose. Um, so it's an interesting question. Why did they write it? And I, that was a question we've been asking. I've been asking all the other authors and you probably haven't heard them. But, you know, why do you write what you write? Universally, it's because it's something that they're really passionate about in one way, shape or form. Yeah, I think it it kind of comes of we we meet these people who happen to have written these books. But what we see in them is... Um, well, our, our motto had always been for White Fire, where spirit meets the page, and that's spirit with a capital S. Like, we want things that the Holy Spirit has breathed into, not saying it's, you know, scripture, but that God has put these passions on people. And generally speaking, he puts passions on people because it's something that needs to be done in the community, in the world, in their family, in their own hearts sometimes. And those are the hard things that hurt. I mean, passion means suffering, right? So these are the things that people are willing to suffer for. And they're usually stories of um, incredible heartbreak and incredible restoration and incredible salvation. And, you know, just where we see that, you know, God takes the hard, messy stuff. And, you know, this is what the Bible's full of, right? The hard, messy, sometimes weird, <laughs> often baffling complicated things and turns them into a message of hope yeah always messy yeah the bible is always messy yeah the people who say they you know well when you ask what do you read well i read good clean things in the bible it's like <laughs> wow okay so that runs yeah. a gamut yeah so i remember you know this is kind of a tangent but just being shocked when i started reading the bible for myself as a as a teenager rather than just bible stories and seeing how ugly some of it is and 
you know, terrible. And there were things that I read going, oh my goodness, they never told me this in Sunday school, you know? Well, I just was reading the beginning, I guess, of Kings and Solomon's Rule. And the first, I think, two chapters of that are like Solomon getting back at all the people who screwed over his dad. Yeah. Well, and then you have the brief Solomon was the wisest, richest man with the most wives and the most gold. And then Solomon falls away. And I well, I'm not even talking about like just, uh, <laughs> just as a matter of fact, like David's dead. I've got some some trash <laughs> yeah. to take out. Yeah. And, and yeah, so we as modern readers, when we really read it seriously, it, it can just be shocking to us because, I mean, in a way, because, wow, these these guys that we were told are awesome are pretty terrible in a lot of ways. And, you know. But the great thing about it is, and I think part of the reason why we do what we do, is no one saw fit when they wrote scripture to sugarcoat it. Right. Like Moses didn't go, well, we really can't say that about Abraham. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, no, we're just going to. Yeah, so why, why are the ugly things included in scripture? Well, I mean, the easy answer is because it was the truth. That's what happened. But I think more... But there's the truth and the truth. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but I think more important is that, I mean, God obviously knew that the heart of humanity was not going to change any time ever. So how do you address our problems today? By showing us that we've always had them and God has always proven stronger. And he's always been able to lift us up out of that. And so, I mean, that's what we're looking for in a story, too, that we want the the ugly, gritty, not for the sake of gritty. I mean, there are stories that, you know, we've come across published and unpublished that are just gritty for the sake of gritty. They're just dark for the sake of being dark. And that's not what we're ever looking for. But we're looking for that reality that says, you know, the world is an ugly place. And we are called to be a light in it. And how do we do that when we are imperfect, when we are flawed, when we are weak? Um, sometimes before we even know God and we're just feeling this, you know, pull towards something. And then how do we take this conviction that we might feel even when, when we are Christians? And how do we take that not even just out into the world, but into our own community, communities of faith, into our church, um, which are so often in in our culture anyway so so much of the church is filled with lifelessness it's just it's taking for granted what it was taught by you know well it doesn't it have to be filled with lifelessness because if you take out all of the all of that stuff we just talked about if you take all that out of the bible really what's left you've got noah loading some people onto the ark moses leading some people across the red sea um jesus telling some good stories yeah. And and that's about it, right? Like you take all of the mess out and you're left with those things that, you know, we teach our kids in in, you know. Yeah, when they're when they're toddlers right. and yeah. incapable of taking in more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then how do you know, how do we choose to interact with anyone, the world, each other? And if you try to bring any of those things into being, do you, you know, do people want to see it? Because yeah. people, even in church, like they, they want church to be an escape out of the world, right? All too often, yes. They, they want to be fed, by which they mean they want to go away leaving, feeling satisfied. But faith is not about satisfaction, because that's just a feeling, right? It it's, shouldn't be about... It's an appetite. It's worse yeah. than a feeling. True, yeah. Yeah, so that shouldn't be what it's about, but all too often it is. Yeah, it should be a call to action. It should be a... Right. Okay, here's the thing that I just told you we're called to do. Right. Now go do it. Yeah. So we, we should be leaving challenged, not just satisfied. Most of us, I hate to say probably... I won't say most of us. I guess, we're, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from anybody who's listening to this. Tell me what your church life is like. Are you being challenged or do you leave going, huh, well, that was an good message I, I feel you know eh, you know not inspired exactly but like lifted up or do you feel like you're left challenged every week and then my other follow-up question is if you feel left challenged do you act on that and are you expected to is there follow-up is there accountability to to those kinds of challenges so Okay, we'll put that off the side because I, I think that's an interesting question and I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to talk about it. But the second thing then is, 
if you're not getting that in your church, where can you get it? This, this goes back to, I guess, the article that I wrote a little bit ago about feeling alone. You know, if you want to check that out, it's on our website. We'll link it in the show notes. But like, you can go through life a lot feeling alone. And how do you, how do you deal with that? And I don't know. It might be a, loading this question way too heavily. But can story do that? And where maybe you find stories like that? Yeah, I mean, I think story definitely can. Um, and I think its power to do that is that. It, a story is going to touch us on that emotional level that we kind of, I mean, I hate to always say, you know, anything should go back to feeling and emotion, but we are emotional creatures. So it has to, in order to be stirred to action, we have to feel something. We have to have that emotional connection. And well, I think that the emotional connection you're talking about is empathy, right? Yeah, exactly. Empathy as an emotion is a little bit different than a lot of the others. That's not like feeling hungry or, or anything else. Like that's feeling something outside of you. Right. It, in, it, it's a connection. Like it's connecting you to a other person or the rest of the world. Right. So unlike most emotions, it's not about you. Right. Well, and a, an example we've talked about before is um, if you look at statistics on say human trafficking, you can see the statistics and be horrified you can see, you know, some true thing that, you know, a law enforcement person is telling you and you can be um, horrified. You can also feel a conviction of, oh, man, I should donate to their cause. Um, but that isn't enough to make me feel like it's part of my life now. Um, so the things that, that really take us that step farther and our true call to action is when it stirs the empathy which is a story. It's when that person who, you know, just got two girls out of um, a really bad situation tells you the story of how they found them and, you know, the the, the circumstances and the, the how the sting went. And it, they tell you a story. Right. And Statistics that makes don't you, matter, right? right? Yeah. They Knowing can, that there's 8 million people and that, you know, such and such percent never get out and all that. Like, none of that matters. Right. Until someone tells you about, let me tell you about this person. Right. Let me tell you about Susie. You know, Susie was in this for five years and we got her out and now she's, you know, whatever. Um, But having that face to put on it and the story behind it makes them real to us. And that's what any story, true or fiction, really does. And that's why we chose some of the stories that we chose to begin with was not only because it tells us about a problem and puts a face on a problem, um, but also because it it helps us to get into the heads of someone in a situation we may never be in. So, I mean, I think of some of our first uh, contemporary fiction was Susie Finkbeiner's Paint Chips, which touches on human trafficking. That's why that one came to mind. And um, not only does it, does it tell us some of the, the tragedy, but it shows us what a healing heart looks like. And it shows us the struggles that people go through and how they rise above it and how they stumble. And, you know, that that makes it really real to the reader. And it it sometimes is very hard for the reader, um, especially if they have perhaps dealt with something like this in their life. But I think what we're really striving to do is not necessarily, you know, put our books in the hands of the people who have dealt exactly with this thing, but the rest of us who never have but who need to have that heart of compassion for those people. Yeah, that was what I was going to get at when you talk about this being a true a true thing, if not necessarily a true story. So, like, why not just tell the true story? Go out and find someone who'd been there and, and tell that version of the story. Like, you, you touched on it's true because it shows us where people succeed, it shows people where they fail, and it, you know, does all of those things. So why not just go find some a story that has all of those elements already? Well... I mean, there's certainly value in that. Um, I'm never going to say, oh, don't bother telling a true story. But something that I have learned a lot about and have explored a bit even in my own writing recently is that um, truth, when you're trying to, to tell a particular story, the truth of it is kind of above the story itself. Like, if I'm trying to tell a true story from my own life, it's mixed up with a whole lot of other stories right? I'm not just, I'm not just one theme and you're not just one theme. Um, so 
even if you take that true story and you just focus on what you're trying to talk about, you have fictionalized it because you've taken out the medical bills that came due and, you know, put things off for two months. And, you know, even when you look at stories in the Bible, how often are things skimmed and skipped over and it'll just say seven years later, you know, what happened in the meantime? You don't need to know. It's not relevant to the story being told. Um, so what fiction allows Or even us... sometimes where, like, you go, this feels like they combined two stories. Well, maybe they did. Yeah. Maybe this wasn't one person. Maybe this was two people. Yeah, maybe it was. And does that take the truth of it out? No, I don't think it does. Because what fiction allows us to do is to choose the story we're focusing on in order to share God's truth which is something bigger than the actual events, right? Um, especially if you consider that, you know, God is, is working all, all times, all places, always. Um, he's not limited by what we interpret as a linear, you know, chronology of events, you know. So what fiction allows us to do is pick and choose what gets told in order to showcase an eternal truth. Well, and to go back to, you know, spirit-filled stories, there also has to be a certain degree of trust that the spirit is touching the person as they're writing this story. Yeah. So if you just go find a true story, the spirit was at work, but it was at work with a whole different motive in that case. The motive at the time for the person living that story wasn't necessarily so that... So that they can tell their story. They could tell their story. There were real people involved there that had real things at stake. Right. But in this case, what fiction is, is it's purely there to tell you a story. I mean, it's purely there to encourage you to do something. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought of it that way before, but that it's simplifying in a way because fiction has two people involved. There's the writer and there's you, the reader. And that those are the only two people in the world that matter because the characters are all fictional. Whereas in a true story... There is a lot of players. There's, you know, the writer, there's the person it's about, and all the people who show up in the story, half of whose names are changed to protect the guilty. And then there are the ones that can't show up for various reasons that you have to figure out how to write around. Yeah, the, yeah, the people that you're not allowed to legally include for one reason or another. And yeah, there's that whole cast, <laughs> a cast of characters in a true story that have to be taken into consideration when you're telling it, not just you in the audience. Right. So, yeah, so the trying to stick to actual events really complicates things. But, and what I think the important part of what I said, because I'm so important, was <laughs> that the author has the spirit telling them. Yeah, right. That Because they're not, they're not just governed by facts, so they can be led more fully by the spirit to write the story that needs to be told. And I'm not saying that anyone's sort of getting, you know those divine downloads that people talk about like i but that's not how the spirit generally works with us anyway right, right? i mean with the exception well i'm just of... saying there are some people out there that say the holy spirit gave me this story so i wrote it exactly like this yeah i always um kind of scoff at that a bit because <laughs> i have had those instances where i would say god gave me a story in the course of a day or two i had a complete 150 word story in my head but that's step one that's not And that has completed. nothing to do with you and the author or and the reader and, and no. the person interacting with that story, right? Like, you haven't even gotten to the point of interacting with a person yet. Oh, no. Well, and that and, you know... That's just for you. Right. And it's generally, I mean, anytime you sit down and you try to put a story to paper or computer screen, as the case may be, nothing ever stays how it was in your head. Nothing. Ever. Um, so if someone is to say, oh, this was a, a download straight from God, so I can't change a thing, I don't even know how you do that. Like, it's kind of like trying to tell someone a dream, right? Never is a dream so clear <laughs> that you can you can just say it and the person understands what you're talking about. Well, this is a long sort of side note, and maybe we shouldn't even go down this road. But, you know, how did God communicate with Moses what happened at creation? I mean, that's, a, that's a great question. And that's why I think, you know... Did he take him all the way back in time and hold him there in a bubble, like... <laughs> like in a cartoon? Yeah. <laughs> and show him... And here, watch it happen? Well, who knows? I mean, And I even if he did, like, happened. how would you understand it? Right. Yeah. Like, I have this much vocabulary. How can I explain this The thing? creation of the universe. Right. 
Yeah, well, and that's why whenever, you know, people get into these debates about what did or did not happen in creation, I'm always of the, the mind that, look, I know God made it. How he made it is certainly up for endless conversation because we don't have the ability to comprehend something like that, especially with, you know... With the ability to comprehend little tiny pieces of it. Yeah, little tiny pieces. And so I think that that's true anytime God speaks to man, because he is a whole lot bigger than we are. And he's a whole lot, you know, fuller and wiser. And even when he tries, or when he does speak to us in human language, we have to know that that's just a slice, right? And the assumption that he isn't there talking to us all the time even very quietly and often sounding an awful lot like you as you try to do a thing, right? Like, so we've talked a lot about authors and words and all of that, but like, isn't that true for everybody all the time? If you're trying to do the best thing that you can. And I think particularly when you're trying to, to take it back to the readers, what do they do with this information? What do they do with this story when they're done? I think we've already established that it's not just an escape from the real world. So it shouldn't be anyway, you know, well, I mean, I guess it could be on some occasions. I think I said in one podcast, like, if you read one of our books for an escapism, you're a bit of a sadist. There are <laughs> all that many where you You just, may have done it wrong. <laughs> yeah. You don't just sit down and go, you know what I think I'll read today is a book by Susie Finkbeiner and have that just be my, my beach read. Yeah. yeah um, it's a little meatier. So what do we expect out of them when they leave? Like, it's it feels really presumptuous of me as a publisher to say, well, what do we expect our readers to do with this when they leave? But I think we do expect them to do something with it. Well, I think so. And I think that, I mean, that actually touches to really pull this back to a, a previous thread of conversation of, I mean, I think part of the reason you may feel alone in in the church or in the world today is is that lack of expectation. And so it's when... A church expects something of you. It's when you have a group that expects something of you. It's when you have a book that expects something of you that you rise. You you stand a little taller. You you take a bigger step. You do something more than what you've been doing. You've said this about teachers. You you've said who was the best teacher? Right. From... Who was who was your favorite teacher? And without exception, from all the people I've ever talked to, it's the hard teacher. It's the strict teacher. It's the teacher that makes you work harder, that expects more of you. Yeah, even if you were, you know, a jerk that never did his work, right? Like, you didn't respect the teacher who let you get away with that. No, never. Yeah, so, I mean, that that can then follow through to all parts of life. So, you know, which church are you going to like? The one that pushes you. Which books are you going to like? The ones that challenge you. Yeah, you want a good story, too. Absolutely. You need the good story. You need the good writing um, in order to kind of transport you to that place where you can engage on that level. But ultimately, you know, some of my favorite books, they're not the ones that were a fun little beach read escapism. They were the ones that changed my life because they made me think about things I'd never thought of before in ways I'd never thought of before and made me question who I was going forward and how I could be a, a, a different version of me going forward, a stronger, better per- version of me going forward. I don't know. I mean, I guess, I don't know if this is quite where we wanted to touch on, but I know, you know, I hear from a lot of readers on a lot of different books, both mine and our, our other authors. And, you know, the ones that I value most as people who took the time to write to me aren't the ones who say, oh, you know, this was a great weekend read and it was nice escape from my daily life. Does anybody write that? Like, I may have had one or two, like, comments, not generally e- full-fledged emails, but occasionally someone will comment on something on social media to that effect. And I'm always... <laughs> this is actually why I stopped reading reviews, because I'd be like, you liked the wrong thing! Um, but the ones that matter, like, the ones that I, I never forget are the ones that say, you know, this character convicted me. This character made me look at the world a different way. Um, this character made me question this assumption I'd always had. And and those are where we as writers go, okay, Lord, thank you. You're showing me why I'm doing this thing I'm doing. Because we put a lot of hours and work into a story. And sometimes you've said like, wait, what, really? 
<laughs> like that character did that for you? Yeah, it's often not what you expect. Like all of our focus might be on this person in a story. And then someone will come at me and say, you know, this scene with this secondary character had me bawling because it was speaking to what I had gone through. And, you know, I thought that was a toss away, um, but God didn't. There's he, no toss away. He knew what it was. Right. I mean, it was important, but it, I didn't think it was the main focus. Um, but that, that too is the beautiful thing about story is that it does strike different people in different ways. And um, I mean, just like when we read the Bible and, you know, today this verse from Psalms really speaks to us and tomorrow that verse from Corinthians really speaks to us. The same thing happens with fiction and with any other story, really, that um, it resonates with, with different people in different ways. And God is capable of taking all these different faucets of story and using them to really touch the hearts of his children. A theme that we're going to potentially follow um, is the idea of writing uh, romance. Mm -hmm. So your books with us aren't necessarily that. They don't meet the strict definition of romance, but they are all love stories. This is always going to be part of everything I write. No, we did just recently acquire an entire company whose entire focus <laughs> was romance. So how yeah. does that fit in with what we do? Well, I like, how is that not one of those throwaway beach read? Because, okay, so I, I have read and listened to a ton of the arguments against romance. And every single one just gets me so frustrated because they're missing something so important. And that is that this is one of the most important things in our life is who we, who we end up marrying, who we spend our life with, how we approach our marriage and our spouse and more, how we approach God. I mean, there is a reason that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. There's a reason this is the analogy that's chosen because it's something, A, we all, most, most, not all, most people experience for themselves. Or have a secondary experience with. Yeah, at the very least, they've, they've seen it. They've brushed up against this concept, right? Everyone understands to some degree the idea of marriage because it's a crucial part of the human existence. Um, so when we take that analogy of this is how God loves us, how is that not the perfect analogy for, for learning more about him through romance? I mean, when we show a, a good relationship or a relationship that at least grows to be a good relationship, what we're showing is this is how we are to love one another. This is how God loves us. And when we get to that place where we make each other better, and I think that's what I, I always want characters to do in a romance is, you know, complete each other in that way of you are a better person because of me and I am a better person because of you. And our love story is a reflection of how God makes us better through that relationship and how Christ came to be part of us. Yeah, and there's an unlimited number of ways you can tell that story. Absolutely. Like someone might be better because the other person is a total jerk. <laughs> Or... Right. <laughs> you you grow stronger <laughs> dealing with that person. Um, but I think that, you know, because it is the analogy that God uses, I mean, A, it's valid right there. Um, but B, because this is such a huge part of our human existence and our human experience, why should we not be paying attention to that? Why should we not be thinking, well, how do I be a better wife? How do I find a husband who you know, reflects God to me. How do I treat this relationship? And it's not about finding some perfection or, and this is one of the, the things that people criticize is, oh, well, that presents this unrealistic view. That's not what it's about, at least not when it's well done. It's not about being unrealistic. It's about being realistic and showing how we can respond. Just in a very truncated timetable. Well, sure. From page one to page 270. Sure. <laughs> Obviously. There, there is a, a formula. It's not unrealistic because that's one of the criticisms that it presents this unrealistic view of what romance is or should be. When in reality, I think what a good one does is show us a very realistic view of you're going to have problems. You're going to have complications. I mean, maybe we don't all have spies hunting us. So obviously there's some, some things here that are not the norm. But, you know, what is supposed to come through in a good romance or a good love story is that there's that other person beside you. And ideally someone willing to sacrifice 
to help you and you being willing to sacrifice. So you, whether you're the hero or the heroine in this story, um, what are you willing to give up in order to better that person, help that person, save that person? Um, so I think, you know, in every love story, there should be that that theme of redemption. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, something that I was just sort of putting together that I thought, you know, this is one of those things that I feel down deeply is that people ought to seek self-sacrifice and maybe that sounds, you know, you know, too self-righteous or something. No, 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 or, not even no, self-righteous. Not like, like you're seeking suffering. You're seeking suffering. But I think that that is one reason why the romance side can do it so well is because if you're willing to sacrifice for someone, I mean, that's why, you know, in a, in a romantic comedy to a degree, you have the, the swelling music in that moment where they go, I'd give up everything to go and do this. Like, why is that powerful? Because the idea of self-sacrifice, I think, is sort of built into our our nature, right? Like, Right. Yeah, That the question of what would you give up to dot 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 is something we, we all encounter at some point or another. Even if it's, you know, whether it's romance or not, whether it's, uh, you know, a big issue or a small, we all deal with this daily, you know. And it's something that we sort of aspire to, particularly in the church, right, is you know, you know, a righteous man would scarcely give up his life or a man would scarcely give up his life for a righteous man. Anyway, however yeah. that said, but like that's in some ways the, the standard, right? So um, romance shows us a place where we can be self-sacrificial in a way that doesn't, in a way that's heartwarming. Right. Yeah, you're, you're not generally left going, so well, I, that was dumb. <laughs> I, I know that some people poo-poo the book Save the Cat right um but one of the things that struck me is um i wish i remembered all the details it's been a long time since i've read it but he breaks down the different genres and he almost puts like romance and romantic comedy and like a war movie where you have you know a brotherhood of men together right because some of the and I'm, I'm sure i'm totally butchering this again send me emails where i've gotten it wrong but just the, the idea of self-sacrifice between, you know, two people who love each other and two people who love each other, but it's a different... Right, whatever the kind of love. ...relationship. Yeah. You know, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. But one is packaged in a different way, in a more accessible way, in a more universal way, right? Like, most of us probably aren't going to experience, like, diving on a grenade to save your friends. Right. I kind of hope not. But... As you pointed out, most of us will experience some sort of romantic you know, relationship. Most people get married. Yeah. And even if you don't, most people have had some form of romantic relationship. Or again, know someone who has. Like, this is yeah. not an uncommon well, experience. And, the yeah. most common experience possible. Right. Yeah. So there should almost be an article, something like, why everyone should read romance. Absolutely. But that would be a great article. They should be... <laughs> They should be the right stories. And I, I guess then this is an interesting question that people never ask me, but I feel like they should is how do they know what the right, you know, how do you know what the right story the to right read story is? is? Because some of them are not that, right? Like yeah. why does romance have a bad name? Because there's a half topless man and woman right, the, on the cover. We, we call them the bodice rippers. Right. And those are generally not Christian fiction. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where it's gotten its bad name. Cause, and, but that is, those are, a lot about the physical and a little bit about the heart. And um, you have then the flip side of the, the Christian romances that people also give a bad name to where it's doesn't even acknowledge the physical. And so, you know, that doesn't ring true, right? Because the physical is part of marriage. And so, and it's part of a romantic relationship to a degree. And so if you ignore this entire side of something, you're left feeling false you're left with yeah. the counterfeit this is one of the things you had said was that christian genre has typically embraced historicals because you can claim that it was a more wholesome time right and i read some of these things and go oh everyone was so proper and sometimes i think this is not my experience and can we really be that much worse right now than they were then so you know. Yes and no. I mean, from a historical standpoint, a lot has changed in modern times because certain risks have been mitigated. Like, you know, 
we have birth control these days. They didn't have it then. So the consequences to things have changed. Well, and so, today, even if you don't have birth control, you're probably not going to die in childbirth. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, when consequences change, actions change. So certainly it is different, but the the human heart isn't different and the desires aren't different. Um, the, the indulgence might be higher um, in a more accepted society is the thing is it's always been there. It's just always been there in this portion of society that was pushed aside. And, you know, that's where you get these lovely Victorian double standards and um, a huge conflict really between the classes, between male and female at the time and, you know, but this is really interesting because this is why you don't sugarcoat it and you don't go, well, we're just going to pretend like everyone was a proper Victorian. Right. But if you can lean into these questions, you, um, your book on Wings of Devotion sort of leans into some of these questions, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know if you want to talk about that, the, the conflict of classes. And... Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting in my research, so I wanted to touch on was that the the higher classes, and this is, you know, World War One and before, could afford... So the end of the aristocracy. Yeah, the end of the aristocracy. They had the leisure of being able to afford to buy off their consequences, basically. So they lived a very fast and loose lifestyle. Um, you know, gentlemen could do anything they wanted because they could just pay off anyone who argued with them. Right. You had a child... Oh, well, you set you, them up somewhere. And... Yeah, you set them up somewhere. You pay them off or you, you know, yeah. So this was how they had lived for hundreds of years was the guys will do what they want with women who were not expected or whatever to, to be proper. Um, and then they just ignored the consequences or paid off the consequences. Um, but then society that couldn't afford to do that had to be moral, right? They had to ab abide by these stricter rules. And they generally did as a rule. Obviously, there are exceptions to this. But what happened in World War I, um, specifically in the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps, uh, was that up until this time, any officer had to be a gentleman, as in by birth. They had to be of a noble class with money. Um, and therefore, they lived this lifestyle that gentlemen were accustomed to living. For the first time, with the advent of airplanes, officers were dying too quickly to replace them with other gentlemen. Right. But to be a pilot, you had to be an officer. Right. So that was that was the rule. That was the law. You had to be an officer to be a pilot. So they started taking um, pilots from any class and making them officers. But because they were officers, they got invited to all the officer parties, which means for the first time you have this, you know, mechanic from the slums of London going to house parties hosted by the aristocracy and invited to, you know, these drinking, gambling, um, trysts, you know, you name it. It was it was there and they didn't know what to do with it. So they indulged because that's our nature, you know, something shiny and, they see and everyone else fun, is. right? So they would do it. Um, and it led to huge problems. So, I mean, yes, there was the good side of it. For the first time, there's equality in the military. And that's what we talk about. Right. That's and the part that gets celebrated. That And it, it deserves to be celebrated because, you know, your merit got you in here. So that's cool. But what you see less of is the suicides. And, you know, the, the families that were ruined and the men who went and lived this life during the war and then went back to the slums in London, they couldn't live like that anymore. It broke them. It broke their families. Yeah, on one end, you'd say, well, that's great. They might aspire to something better. But, but there's if you still can't only, obtain the better thing. There's still only so much you can reach for. Um, so, yeah, so that was something that, you know, that we see in history, but we don't look at very often is that, you know, there's there's generally that that side to indulgence that we don't always want to talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, so why is it important to talk about that? What what difference does it make to someone reading in 2020, you know, America, what happened in 26 or 2060, 1916, <laughs> 1918, you know, Europe? Right. Well, I think it's important in part because um, I think a lot of us are in those shoes today where we're taught, we're told that anything is within our reach, that you can do anything you want, and the consequences are ignored. So, so to a point, we're, we're all in that place of transition where maybe we were raised with these morals, maybe we weren't, um, but there's this shiny thing in front of us, or we're just told it's okay, indulge, do what you want to do. Um, 
But what we can see here is that the consequences never really go away, right? So they're always there. And I think what I want it to be is a challenge for all of us to be better. And that was, that was actually something I was doing as a hashtag last year was be better. If we are called to the Christian faith, we're called to a higher standard. And that's something that, um, you know, we need to kind of cling to and embrace and explore in this day when we are told, do what you want, consequences be hanged. So I guess the world isn't all that different. The world is never all that different. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is history doesn't repeat. It echoes. It rhymes. rhymes. It rhymes. I messed it up. History does not repeat. It rhymes. Um, and so I think we're rhyming a lot with the world 100 years ago right now. That's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> As we come to the end here, um, what would you like listeners to do? What, what, what kind of action would you like to see from them? going forward? Um, I think one thing I would really like to see author That's fine. <laughs> readers, readers do is um, to really be open with themselves and honest and say, after every book you finish, whether it's ours or mine or someone else's, what is God asking me to do? And I know that's, that's a very broad <laughs> call to action. It's not just click a button. So maybe something like uh, that I would put out would be you know, go to our website, whitefiretv.com slash podcast. Send us a message. What God has asked you to do having read a book recently. Yeah. And if you go, I don't know. Well, the next thing you read. Ask yourself that question. Ask yourself that question. Come back and tell us. Right. Uh, because one of the strange things I've learned, there tends to be a consensus. God tends to be asking different people in different places to all be doing the same kinds of things. Yeah. And I think we need to be aware of, of what that is. And that changes over Absolutely. time. Um, this is a bit touchy-feely, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, amorphous, right? But, you know, you see themes, right? This is this is almost in the rhyming thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. like you're saying something, and someone else is saying something, and this fourth person is saying something, and all of those things come together to tell a story. Right. And it, it, I mean, to, to talk about it in musical terms, it resonates. And that's why we say it resonates with us. Because when you get all those pieces of the chord together, it actually sets off tones that weren't even pressed. So that's what I think, you know, we want our stories to do. All the different stories. Yeah. Like you're saying that people are going to hear from all over the place. It's going to resonate and create something more. Yeah. So I'm really curious to hear what that more is. Because, I mean, I think for us, it's... A community right like if we're all together and we're all sharing you know what god is asking us to do particularly what god is asking us to do as we've you know read a particular book i think that that's that's a huge thing that we could we could do consistently right like that's yeah. that's an important way to go about it and to take what could be just a indulgent thing i sit and read a book in an afternoon some right. some people do that <laughs> some people who listen to this might do that but instead, when you finish, instead of putting it down and go, all right, wow, I got to go do dishes, take a minute. Yeah. Or even while you're doing the dishes, what is it you're, what is it you're thinking about? What is it that's, that, what is it in the story that's asking you to change in, in a way that you relate to? I mean, I'll give a concrete example here from my last book, which again, is not a white fire title, but um, On Wings of Devotion, is I had quite a number of people uh, email me or message me to say that my heroine, who is wealthy, I was afraid I was going to get flack from there, from her being wealthy. But like, in, spectacularly she, wealthy. She was spectacularly wealthy, but she was asked by God to give to the point where it hurt. And um, that was something that she did, and we see her struggle with it. Uh, but I had all these people messaging me saying, I, she convicted me because I don't ever give till I hurt. So I'm going to start, you know, watching where God is asking me to do that. And that hits on your thing of self-sacrifice is that, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's monetary, sometimes it's time, sometimes it's just your emotional investment, but he's always asking you to give till it hurts because that's when you're removing the barriers between you and him. So what is he asking us to give up that hurts us? So, I mean, that, that's the sort of, that's the sort of call to action I want to be in hand in hand with our books is... What is God asking you to do through these characters, through this plot, through whatever, 
that is going to take you to a deeper place of faith. Yeah, so I have a feeling that that's going to become a bigger thing than our normal <laughs> call to action that says, you know, if you feel called to, you know, donate to the Portland Rescue Mission. Click here. Click here and we'll provide a link. Like This is going to be a much potentially yeah. bigger. <laughs> Sorry. A more amorphous idea, but probably a more valuable one. Because if we can take time to take stock and say, how did this affect me? Yeah. You know, we talk, we've talked about with lots of people, but never here, because it's the first time we've done this, um, you know, about our college experience. And one of the big differences with our experience versus other people is we read the book. We read the original book by, you know, from Euclid and Plato to, I don't know, Kant, Kant and, and Nietzsche. But we don't just read them and, like, take a test on them. We read them and then we sit down with 20 other people and we talk <laughs> about them. I laugh at the mere thought of read them and take a test. What do you get from that? Nothing. Uh, yeah, no, but it's all about the conversation and it's... And the reflection on... Yeah. Oh, that's not how I, met, I, I thought of that. But obviously that's much more right than... Than what I was thinking. Than what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a constant reflection is is important and cool. And I think we're going to have to find a way to do that to, to get all of you listeners and readers more involved with what we're doing. Cause that's maybe the most important thing that we could ever do as a publisher <laughs> is say, all right, now, now what? Yeah. I mean, that's an ultimate call to action. It's not a click a button. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not good at click a button things. <laughs> well, I mean, you had a hashtag that was be better. People could just share that. That's super duper easy. Yeah, there you go. A simple call to action would be, yeah. Describe that process. Okay, so this actually started from um, when we were hearing about the Me Too movement and all of these stories coming out in all different, you know, the church, Christian fiction circles everywhere about harassment and sexual impropriety. And um, a friend of ours said, well, it's no worse in the church than it is outside the church. And my reaction was, but we're supposed to be better. Um, so that just it's became... like, really, that's a standard? <laughs> yeah. So that became a theme that I started exploring in a lot of my blog posts, um, which is rosannamwhite.blogspot.com, by the way. All of this um, will be in the show notes. Don't worry. Yeah. Yep. Didn't write it down. <laughs> so, but I... I, you know, really wanted to explore that God doesn't call us to be as good as the, no worse than the world, right? God calls us to set an example of him. a little bit better. No, he calls us to be better. Um, so, you know, I, I talked about things like the right kind of shame and the wrong kind of shame. Like, do you deserve the shame for someone else's sin? No. Do you deserve the shame for your own unrepented sin? Absolutely you do. The whole point of shame is to convict you and call you to repentance. And make you so, a better person. And make you God a better forbid. person. Um, so, you know, there's the wrong shame, the, the shame for something someone did to you that is not yours and you should not be burdened by that. But then there's the right shame that calls you to a higher... And potentially even the shame that you have repented of that, you know, someone's throwing back in your face. Right. To try to tear you down. Like That's the wrong kind of shame. Um, but that, you know, when taken in the way God intended, all of these things are meant to make us better. They're meant to make us holier, more like him. So that was something that I did a lot of, of exploring of about a year, a year and a half ago. Um, so yeah, so you can, uh, you know, share hashtag be better, which is the call to be more than what the world wants us to be, to be something holier, to be something more godly. And yeah, basically to go deeper in your faith. This podcast is sponsored by Read Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format, as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose ordinary when you can read extraordinary? Unexpressed is part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv slash podcast to find other shows we know you're going to love.